0: You are listening to the Wickenburg Pulpit, the preaching ministry of First Southern Baptist Church of Wickenburg, Arizona, where we seek to be faithful to scripture and relevant to life. You turn in your Bibles to Galatians chapter four, beginning in verse twenty-one. Galatians chapter four, beginning in verse twenty-one. And before we dive in, let's pray together. Bow your heads with me. Father God, we thank you for this day that you've given us. Father, and I, I pray that as we dig into your Word, Lord, that your gospel would be made real to us, Lord. That we would recognize our sinfulness, but Lord, recognize that it is through you alone that we can be saved. It is through you alone that we can have have hope of eternal life. We thank you for your word, Lord. We pray that you speak to us through it. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Now, I don't know if all of you are familiar with uh, the pastor, R.C. Sproul, who is now with the Lord. He was a Presbyterian pastor down in Florida. Uh, But he tells a story about how he was on a walk when he was... 24 years old when a man robbing a jewelry store ran right into him while he wasn't trying to be heroic he told the man to stop right there and the man gave up and sprawl held him until the police arrived a few days later he saw the police officer that arrested him and said hey you know what's what's going on with the with that man and the man was released shortly after he was arrested The truth is, the man had actually wanted to go to jail. Why would anybody want to go to jail? Well, for this man, jail was comfortable to him. He'd been there several times. That's what he knew. Uh, he He got three meals a day and a roof over his head. So when he was robbing the bank, he was actually trying to go back to jail. That's what he wanted. Now, it seems a bit bizarre that anyone would despise freedom and choose jail over freedom. But that's exactly what the Galatians are doing in this passage today, in the whole book, actually. They had received the gospel that freed them from the law, the gospel of justification by faith, the gospel of adoption as sons of God, as we saw a couple of weeks ago. And last week, we saw that they were quickly turning back to the law, that which enslaves them that which imprisons them, and observing the things in the law that served as a shadow to point to the reality of Jesus. They were going back to that which enslaved them and that does not save. In the text today, Paul asks a question. He says, you who want to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? We're going to read this passage and Dive right in here, beginning in verse 21. Paul asked this question Tell me, you who want to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by the bondwoman and one by the free woman. But the son by the bondwoman was born according to the flesh, and the son of the free woman through the promise. This is allegorically speaking for these women are two covenants, one proceeding from Mount Sinai, bearing children who are to be slaves. She is Hagar. Now this Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to the present Jerusalem for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, she is our mother. For it is written, rejoice barren woman who does not bear, break forth and shout you who are in labor, who are not in labor, for more numerous are the children of the desolate than of the one who has a husband. And you brethren, like Isaac, are children of the promise. But as at that time he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the spirit, so it is now also. But what does the scripture say? Cast out the bondwoman and her son. For the son of the bondwoman shall not be an heir with the son of the free woman. So then, brethren, we are not children of the bondwoman, but of the free woman. Now that's a lot going on right there. What in the world is this saying to us? Um, So, Again, Paul asks this question, you who want to be under the law. We saw last week that these Galatians are wanting to turn back to the law, turn back to this message that does not save, this this message that cannot impart life. And he says, "You who want to turn back, have you even read it? Do you know what it says?" And obviously they don't. And so what Paul is going to do is to share a story from the Old Testament to them. And, and interpret it in an allegorical way to communicate the gospel of Jesus Christ. And th- this, this passage is going to show us what the gospel does for us. And the first thing that I want us to see is that the gospel gives us freedom. The gospel gives us freedom. He begins to share here um, in verse 22 that it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by the bondwoman and one by the free woman. Now this is taken from Genesis chapter 16. This is the story of Sarah and Hagar and Ishmael and Isaac and you can turn there if you would like. We're not uh, just just so you can have reference to it. Keep your finger on it. But remember before that in Genesis chapter 12 God establishes his covenant with Abraham. He promises him a land that and that Through Abraham, all the families of the earth would be blessed. In Genesis 15, God promises Abraham a son, that one from his own body would be his heir. He promises that, and in Genesis 15, Abraham says he believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness, which is where we see in the Old Testament we're even declared righteous by faith. But much like the Galatians, and much like us at times... ...who once trusted in the promises of the gospel and now are turning back to the law. Abraham, who believed in God's promises, is now with his wife Sarah... ...and he's taking matters into his own hands instead of waiting to receive God's promise by a gift of grace. He's trying to receive God's promise now through his own efforts. And Sarah, who was Sarai at this point, was older, had not had children... ...so she comes up with the bright and clever idea... For Abraham to have a child with her slave woman, Hagar. Now, if you're already thinking, well, this thing's probably gonna go south, well, it does very quickly. She gave her to Abraham as his wife, so now he has two wives. Well, already this is a recipe for disaster. This is against Genesis. Abraham follows through, they conceive, and when Sarai realizes that Hagar is pregnant, she despises Hagar. Now, when I read this story, I pause. Like, Sarah, this was your bright idea to begin with. Why are you despising her? This story's a mess. As she comes to Abram and says, May the wrong done to me be upon you. Now, I'm going to be honest here for a moment. I've really got no sympathy for Sarah here. This was her idea, and now she's playing the victim. And Sarah treated Hagar harshly, so she fled. But even so, we have to realize that Abraham is responsible here. Even though this was Sarah's bride idea, Abraham should have said, Honey, that's that's a crazy idea. No, we're not going to do that. We're going to trust in God's promises. But no, Abraham followed through because he's trying to achieve God's promises in his own effort. Much like the Galatians are. But Hagar gave birth to a son named Ishmael. Now God came back in chapter 17, and he confirms this covenant with Abraham in chapter 17, that nations would come from him, and kings would come from his line. We see that through the line of David. He promises then that Sarah would give Abraham a son, and his name would be Isaac, and that God would establish his covenant with Isaac. In Genesis 18:11 we see that Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in age and Sarah was past the years of childbearing. Now the King James version, which is more word for word here in the Greek, it says it ceased to be with Sarah after the manner of women. Now that's very broken, but that's literally what it says in the Greek. The ESV cleans it up a little bit more. They're saying the way of woman women had ceased to be with Sarah. She was older, and she was no longer physically to have, able to have children. So, of course, she's saying, well, how, how is this going to happen? I, I, I literally cannot do this. But in Genesis 18, 14, the angels who came and appeared to Abram and Sarai said, Is anything too difficult for the Lord? anything too difficult for the Lord Isaac was the son of promise and we see his birth in Genesis 21 now Paul shares this story so that we see a contrast that points to the gospel Ishmael and Isaac were both sons of Abraham but Ishmael was born a slave and Isaac was born free Ishmael was conceived as man's effort to claim God's promises Isaac was conceived supernaturally as a result of God's promise. Paul notes in this text that Ishmael was born according to the flesh, whereas Isaac was born according to the promise, and later in verse 29, according to the Spirit. Now, Paul shares this story and gives us an allegorical interpretation showing that Ishmael represents those who are enslaved to the law who will not inherit God's promises. And Isaac represents those who by faith have freedom in the gospel and are trusting in God's promises. The gospel is a message that through faith in God's promises that have been fulfilled in Jesus, in his perfect life, his substitutionary death, his victorious resurrection, that we experience freedom, whereas before we were in bondage. The very next passage in chapter 5, verse 1, it says, "...it was for freedom that Christ set us free." The gospel gives us freedom from the law and freedom from sin. Paul, in sharing this historical account, he's saying this To those of you who want to be under the law, let me tell you what the law says. You can't receive God's promises by your own effort, you receive them by trusting in them. It is those who have faith who receive. What God has promised. It is those who are freed from the law's demands that are recipients of his promises. He shares this historical account here, but then under divine inspiration, he interprets this allegorically, sharing that the two mothers represent two covenants. One represents the old covenant, the covenant of works based on the law, and Sarah represents the new covenant, the covenant of grace. Now, Before I go any further, I want to make a side comment. Paul is interpreting this allegorically. He says that there in, in verse 24, allegorically speaking. So he is interpreting this story and using it allegorically. Now, he's doing this under divine inspiration This does not give us license to interpret Scripture in this manner on our own. Allegorical interpretations of Scripture are not warranted unless the Scripture itself interprets it in this way. And Paul is doing so under the divine inspiration of the Spirit of God. And so we will continue. He says here in verse 24... This is allegorically speaking, for these women are two covenants, one proceeding from Mount Sinai, that's where the law was given, bearing children who are to be slaves. She is Hagar. Hagar is Mount Sinai and corresponds to the present Jerusalem, and she is in slavery with her children, but the Jerusalem above is free. She is our mother. Now, the old covenant, as we have said, the law had the purpose of pointing us to the new covenant. The law points us to Christ. Hagar represents the old covenant and those trusting in the law. And it says that those, if you're trusting in the law for salvation, you're enslaved to it. It will not save you. Hagar corresponds to the present Jerusalem. And what Paul is saying here is those who are, who belong to the present Jerusalem at this time, the Jewish people, they are enslaved. They are enslaved to the law. They are not being saved by it. Those trusting in the law for salvation are in slavery, but those who are trusting in Jesus, who belong to the new Jerusalem that is above, are free. I cannot fathom, church, anybody who wants to be under the law. I, can Im- I, can- I cannot imagine the slavery it must be, thinking and wondering if we have done enough and the uh, the weight it must feel when you don't match up to the law. As we saw a couple of weeks ago that they were observing feasts and, and, and years and months and days and all these feasts in the law. Did I, did I observe those correctly? Did I, did I do everything just right? Okay, let, let, did I keep the Sabbath day holy? Well, hold on, there was that Saturday the other day that I moved some furniture across the, across the, the, the floor Oh, man, I messed that one up. Have I honored my mother and father? Well, man, I can think of several times when I was younger. We won't talk about those. Have I told any lies? Well, well there was that one time, but it was, it was kind of a white lie, so I don't think that counts, does it? Have I, have I coveted anything? Well, man, when I saw my neighbor's new boat, I sure did want one. Man, I, I don't know if I'm going to make it. Well, let me tell you the truth. You aren't going to make it living and thinking in that way. The law cannot impart life. But the gospel frees us from that kind of thinking and living. I love some of the great hymns of the faith because they speak of the great hope and the freedom that the gospel brings. I love the song that it says Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. He paid it all he didn't pay some of it he paid all of it the song that we just sang it is well with my soul oh the bliss of this glorious thought my sin not in part but the whole was nailed to the cross and i bear it no more praise the lord praise the lord And what great truths those are. Church, when we come to the law and when Satan uses it to accuse you and me that that we told a lie or that we coveted or that we used the Lord's name in vain, the gospel tells me that Jesus took all my sins on the cross. All of the lies that you've told, all of the, the coveting that you've done. All the times you've dishonored your mother and father. Every time you've used the Lord's name in vain. Your sin was nailed to the cross with Jesus. Every last one. And I can breathe. I can breathe knowing that Jesus paid it all. I can breathe knowing that all of my sin was taken on the cross. The gospel gives us a new freedom. Number two, the gospel gives us a new identity. When we come to this text, we see that the believers have a new identity. First, we have a new citizenship. It says the believers at Galatia do not belong to the present Jerusalem, but the Jerusalem above. Those who were trusting in the law to save them, well, that was the present Jerusalem. But he says those of us who are trusting in the gospel those of us who are free who have this freedom we belong to the jerusalem above she is our mother as it says revelation 21 verse 2 speaks of this new jerusalem john records in his vision he says i saw the holy city The new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God made ready as a bride adorned for her husband and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying behold the tabernacle of God is among men and he will dwell among them and they shall be his people and God himself will be among them. Those who belong to this new Jerusalem, this Jerusalem above, John describes the church as a bride adorned for her husband. Now men, I want to take you back ...to that wedding day that you had. Think about that day when your bride, you saw her at the back of the auditorium. She was dressed in her white dress, adorned, ready to become one flesh. We're the bride of Christ. And as the bride of Christ, we have a new identity. Just as my wife and just as your wife took on your name and my wife took on my name... Our wives received a new identity when, we became, when they became our bride. In the same way, those of us who are united to Christ by faith have a new identity as we belong to this Jerusalem above. We take on Christ's name. He dwells with us and he be, we become his people. We're no longer children of the bondwoman, but we are children of the free woman. Galatians 4.28 also says this, says that we are children of the promise. Now it seemed in previous passage, passages that, that um, Paul questioned their salvation, doubted their salvation, but even when we see in verse 28, it's his he says, Brethren, he affirms that they're brothers in Christ. And he says, We like Isaac are children of the promise. We become adopted sons and daughters of God with a promised inheritance that awaits us. You have a new identity as one who has been freed from slavery and adopted as a son. What ought our response to be to that? When Paul thinks about the freedom that we have in the gospel, this new identity, not as a slave but a son, he bursts into song. In verse 27, he quotes Isaiah 54, verse 1. Rejoice, barren woman who does not bear. Break forth and shout, you who are not in labor. For more numerous are the children of the desolate than the one who has no husband. He, he, he breaks forth in song, quoting this passage from Isaiah. Now, when Isaiah prophesied this, he was not thinking about Sarah, but the city of Jerusalem who was barren because it had been carried away into exile into Babylon. This verse was a verse of hope that one day those who were in exile would return to Jerusalem and God would restore his people and they would be free. This even points to the new Jerusalem that is spoken of in Revelation that there would be people from every tribe, nation, and tongue, a multitude of children of God that no one could count. This is fitting to refer back to Sarah as well, although that was not Isaiah's intent. But Paul is using it that way because allegorically Sarah represents this heavenly Jerusalem. She was barren, but God gave her the child of promise and made her the mother of many nations. And from this new Jerusalem comes believers from every tribe, nation, and tongue. Dear church, you belong to the people of God. You have a new citizenship in the heavenly Jerusalem. You are a bride of Christ. You are united with him. You are no longer a slave, but a child of of God because you're trusting in the promises of God fulfilled in Jesus the gospel gives us a new identity and Paul's response was to rejoice our response to our union with Christ to this new identity as an adopted son or daughter of God through faith should lead us to joyful praise lead us to to rejoice in what God has done for us in the gospel But number three, the gospel also promises persecution. While our new freedom and this new identity ought to result in joyful praise, we must not be naive in thinking that Christianity is smooth sailing. Verse 28 here says that we were children of the promise. But verse 29 says, at that time... At that time, he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit. So it is now also. Now this references that the birth of Isaac was a supernatural birth. It was according to the Spirit. Now it wasn't a virgin birth like like Jesus. But it was supernatural nonetheless because Sarah was physically unable to have children. But God blessed Abraham and Eve with Isaac, I said Eve, didn't I? Abraham and Sarah with Isaac. And we see that it was according to the Spirit, whereas the birth of Ishmael was Abraham's fleshly attempt to achieve God's promises without God's blessing. And the text says that he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the spirit now ishmael was 17 years old when isaac was born i want you to think about this from ishmael's perspective he he was he was 17 he was abraham's firstborn son who should become the heir well if you're ishmael it ought to be me i'm The firstborn son of Abraham. I should be Abraham's heir. But God told Abraham that the one born to Sarah would be the son of promise. Isaac would be the one to be blessed. Isaac would be the one to become Abraham's heir, not Ishmael. Now you can imagine how he feels that he's not going to be his father's heir. This new baby would be Abraham's heir. In Genesis 21, verse 9, it reads that Sarah saw the son of Hagar mocking. Ishmael did not like Isaac and persecuted him. We see in this passage that Sarah had asked Abraham to drive Ishmael and Hagar out because Ishmael would not be an heir. God confirmed Sarah's words that it was through Isaac that his descendants would be named. Ishmael was born a slave and not an heir. Isaac was born free and Abraham's heir. Of course he was persecuted. And Paul, in referring to this persecution, that the son of slavery persecuted the son of promise, notice what it says here in verse 29. So it is now also. It's not just that... Ishmael persecuted Isaac, but those who are of the promise, those who have freedom in the gospel, so it is now also you can expect persecution. The gospel promises that those who trust in it, trust in the gospel, will endure persecution. God's true people have always been persecuted. We see that today in in cancel culture and Christianity being marginalized and pushed to the fringes. We see that in other countries where believers lose their lives and have to meet in secret just to worship the Lord. In 2 Timothy 3, Paul warns that difficult times will come for God's people. That he himself has endured various kinds of persecution and says that all who desire to live a godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted even in the great hall of faith that we see in chapter 11 in Hebrews. We see that people's faith enabled them to do great things for God, but we also see that people's faith got them killed. Let me read a portion from Hebrews chapter 11 in verse 32. And what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouth of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection." And some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Man, some of that stuff's pretty cool, isn't it? Stopping fire, stopping the mouth of lions, becoming mighty, sending foreign armies to flight. Man, that's a, you can make a movie out of that. That's good stuff. It was their faith that enabled them to do those things. But the very next verse says this, others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy. Sometimes our faith enables us to enter a lion's den in a fiery furnace unscathed. But sometimes our faith gets us killed. On July 6th, 1415, a man by the na- name of John Huss, who was a, you could say he was a forerunner to the Protestant Reformation. He was burned at the stake and charged with heresy for preaching against the doctrines of the Catholic Church. His last words were almost prophetic. As, as he was killed 102 years before Martin Luther nailed the 95 feces to the doors of Castle Church in Wittenberg, Germany. This, were, this was his last words. You are going to burn a goose. But in a hundred years you will have a swan in which you can neither roast or boil. Literally 102 years later... Martin Luther sparked the Protestant Reformation, recovering the very doctrines Paul defended here in this book. Now, church, you may not be burned at the stake, or you may never be sawn in two. I sure hope not. But you can expect persecution as a believer. The gospel promises that. Now, why would anyone want to become a Christian if this is the life that we can expect? Expect. Because Jesus is worth it. The gospel is worth it. Jesus is worth living for, and he is worth dying for. Now, I don't share this for you to have second thoughts about following Jesus, but to give a very real picture of what you can expect as a follower of Christ. The world hates Jesus and his gospel. The Gospel of John says he came to his own, and his own did not receive him. Men did not come to the light because they hate the light, it says in the Gospel of John. And he says this in John 15, verses 18 and 20. He says, if the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of this world, I chose you out of this world. Because of this, the world hates you. The world hates Jesus and therefore will hate those whom he has chosen out of this world. The world will hate Christians. If you claim Jesus is the only way, if you teach that there is something fundamentally wrong and broken in humanity that needs to be redeemed, and Jesus is the only one who can restore what is broken, the world will hate you. If you maintain that the Bible is authoritative and all other views are incorrect, the world will hate you. I'm not telling you again these things for you to second guess following Jesus. Not in the slightest. He is absolutely worth anything and everything that comes our way due to our faithfulness to him. Hear these words from Matthew's gospel. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil things against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Dear church, the world persecuted those who came before Jesus They persecuted Jesus, and they will persecute those who follow Jesus. But the reward of those who are faithful, even through this persecution, is great. Stay faithful to Jesus, and be ready to endure what might come your way, because Christ is worth it. Number four, the gospel presents a serious warning. We don't want to sugarcoat the Bible or ignore difficult passages, but in verse thirty, here's a serious warning. And quoting again Genesis twenty-one verse ten, it says, "What does the Scripture say? Cast out the bondwoman and her son, for the son of the bondwoman shall not be an heir with the son of the free woman." Again, Paul is interpreting this allegorically. Who is the son of the bondwoman? The one who is in slavery to the law. He is telling the Judaizers the focus of this book here, that they will not receive God's inheritance. The Jews who are trusting in the law to save them, trusting in circumcision and and feasts to save them, they will not inherit the kingdom of God. Here is the warning for us today. If we are trusting in anything other than the perfect obedience of Christ and His shed blood to atone for our sins, we will not inherit His kingdom. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, period. Nothing else. Have you ever heard the phrase, don't put all your eggs in one basket? you ever heard that? When it comes to the gospel, I'm telling you the opposite. Put all of your eggs in that basket. Trust in Jesus alone. The gospel alone saves. It is the power of God for salvation to all who believe. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through him. Romans 1.16 says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. 1 Corinthians 1.18, For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Acts 4.12, And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. Trust in Jesus alone. Because if you're trusting in anything other than the gospel to save you, the warning is serious, you will be cast out. But the good news is that trusting in Jesus alone will save you from your sin. Lastly, and we'll be through, the gospel gives us confident assurance. In verse 31, we have this positive affirmation. So then, brethren, we are not children of the bondwoman, but of the free woman. We're not those people trusting in the law for salvation. We don't belong to them. We belong to Jesus. And this gives us confident assurance that we will not be cast out. Several other scriptures give us this same confidence. In John 6, 37, Jesus says, All that the Father gives to me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. He continues in verse thirty nine, and this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he's given me, but raise it up on the last day. John six forty, for this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son, believes in him, should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. John ten twenty eight. Through twenty nine, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my Father's hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. Romans eight, thirty eight through thirty nine, I am convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Dear believer, you are secure in Christ. If you are trusting in the gospel alone, you will not be cast out. The gospel gives us this confident assurance gives us a life of freedom that I don't have to worry about every time I sin because it's been laid on Jesus. The one living under the law cannot have confident assurance even for a second, but the one trusting in Christ alone can have confident assurance that Jesus will raise you up on the last day, that nothing can snatch you out of the Father's hand, and that nothing will separate you from God's love. I've said before that this assurance does not give us license to sin. But this assurance enables us to live in freedom, not worrying whether God's going to cast us out or not because we sinned yesterday or the day before. Salvation through the law leads to hopelessness and despair and slavery. Salvation through the gospel by grace alone, through faith alone and Christ alone, leads to freedom and a new identity and confident assurance. If you're here today and you're not a follower of Jesus, I invite you to come experience this freedom today. Whatever it is that you're seeking fulfillment in will not give you the fulfillment you think it will. It will only enslave you. Come to Jesus and find freedom in Christ and confident assurance. It will not be easy. You'll experience persecution, but it will be totally worth it. To the believer this morning, be encouraged by the gospel. Allow the assurance that comes from the gospel comfort your soul. Rest in God's promises to keep you and find comfort that nothing and no one will snatch you from his hand and separate you from his love. He saved you while you were a sinner and he's not going to cast you out because you are a sinner. Nothing prevented him from setting his love upon you when you were at your worst unrepentant state. And nothing will prevent him from loving you now. Church, persecution will come to us individually and as a church. Our faithfulness to the gospel may cause people to say things about us and say things that aren't true. But as Jesus said, if they hated you, remember they hated me first. Blessed are you when people insult and revile you, for great is your reward. May we be a church that is faithful to stand in the gospel, to anchor to it, and to share it with a lost world living in darkness. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. What does our Courtney and Kelly come up, Lord, we thank you for saving us.